Okay. How many of you already have your Christmas trees up and decorated? That's a little slow. I mean, it's usually the day after Thanksgiving. So uh, when you do get them up and get them decorated so many times, a decorated Christmas tree is a, a symbol inspiring a lot of hope, stirring up a lot of warm memories, and building a lot of expectations. The uh, modern tradition that we have uh, comes to us from Germany, and supposedly even Martin Luther was uh, one who put some lights or candles on the tree that was in his house. Now, regardless of what your opinion is of Christmas trees, I hope this morning that you will gain a new and a better one. You'll find an outline for this morning's message uh, on panel five, and let me suggest that uh, during the message, you sort of keep your fingers in Genesis 2 and 3. We'll be looking uh, alternately at the, those particular chapters. So, <clears throat> just as we all have in common an origin that comes from God through Adam and Eve, because of that, we have the same temporal destiny. Hebrews 9.27 tells us what that is. Just as it is given unto man once to die, and after that, face judgment. And that's sort of double-barreled bad news. There's not a whole lot of good news in that, but that is, if you would, our twofold problem. And so beginning with Advent, as we look forward to Christmas, from, if you would, the most distant perspective that we can gain from the Old Testament. As we do that and look at Christmas, what I'm going to propose to you that in the message that I have chosen to title, A Tale of Two Trees, we are going to find that one answer to that twofold problem that all of us face. Please stand then for the reading of God's Word. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east. And there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired and make, to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate. 
Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid, because I was naked, and I hid myself. He said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord said to the woman, What is this that you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all the beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, this is your word. A word that is inspired by your spirit, true and without error, speaking your knowledge to us, revealing to us your will for your creation and for your people. This morning by that same spirit, open our eyes to see and to understand all that you have put in this portion of your word today, that we might see the grandeur of your plan that was unfolded from the beginning of the world. And we ask and we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Please be seated. So, we're looking to a single solution for a double problem. Now, regardless of what you might have been led to believe somewhere, the solution to that problem is not in the first tree. Clearly, the first tree came with a warning, a very vivid warning. And we're told in verse 17 of chapter 2 that that warning said, don't do this. If you do it, you're going to die. And so that warning came with a command that required obedience. It was not a, well, you might like to, or if you want to, go ahead. It was, you shall not do it. Now, how did our first parents handle that command, that warning? Well, it's clear that they disobeyed. And what happened when they disobeyed? The disobedience of our first parents brought us into what our confession calls in a state of sin and misery. It brought sin and it brought death. It brought all kinds of death. It brought physical death. It brought spiritual death. And it threatens eternal death. It was a very bad day. A very terrible thing had happened and it was seemingly 
irreversible. And the question sort of is posed, what is it that will happen to reverse this terrible state of sin and misery, which we all have been born into, and to be freed from it, God would have to do something. As we look at this situation and our first parents' behavior, it seems to be very clear to me that whether we're in paradise or wherever else we are, the devil is always ready to tempt us to disobedience. Notice verse 1 of chapter 3. That ancient serpent who in this narrative is foreshadowing the ancient serpent who is destroyed by Christ in the book of the Revelation. It is the picture, if you would, the foreshadowing of the devil and it says he is the most crafty of all the beasts of the field that the Lord had created. So when you think about the devil, don't think of some kind of a, a partial God, some, someone who has power that is like God. He is a created being. He can only do what he has given permission to do by God. We see that in the life of Job. He is not a freelance operator. He operates under the rule of God. And so as we trace that devilish dialogue between the serpent and Eve and the serpent and Adam, what we find, a lot of things that are similar to us. The games they are playing, the excuses they are making, the blame shifting they are attempting, everything they can do to avoid responsibility for what they had done. Now, what this tells me, and I hope is what it tells you, is that we very seldom give the gravity that are, is due to the warning that God gives us. When God says, thou shalt not, we should give a lot of gravity to that kind of a command. There's a great warning to protect us when the Lord warns us in that way. I remember a long time ago in what was the Armored Officers Advance Course at Fort Knox, a class of about 200 officers, uh, mostly majors and captains, the majority of which have already uh, served at least one tour in Southeast Asia. And there was one officer in particular who uh, frequently would say to the rest of us, whatever you do, don't try to disarm a booby trap. Whatever you do, don't mess with it. Don't touch it. Well, the sad reality was that about a year later in the Army Times where they publish uh, the casualty list, his name was on the casualty list. He had been killed in action trying to disarm an improvised explosive device. He couldn't even take his own advice. I mean, how many times do you not take your own advice? You say to your child, don't drive too fast, you're going to get a ticket. You know, and a week later, what do you do? You get a ticket. Now, we don't even take our own advice a lot of times. One of the real problems is when God says, don't do this. We don't give those kind of warnings the gravity they are due. And we find that in the midst of the gardens in which we live, that we might call our own man-made paradise, there's a serpent there waiting to tempt us 
to disobey God. It's not a new thing. I'm going to, if you would, take a minute and try an uh, unscientific uh, survey to prove to you the inerrancy of the Word of God. Okay? Ladies, raise your hand if you ever held in your hand a snake, a live snake. I got one. I got two. Okay, I got two, three hands. All right, of those three hands, keep them up if you've ever held a poisonous snake. All right, we're down to none. What I'm going to say to you is there is enmity, a natural enmity that God has placed between evil and us. The other night, uh, we were watching a television program and they had a story on one of these uh, guys that uh, hunts these renegade python in uh, the Everglades in Florida. And Pamela said to me, I'm getting sick <laughs> just watching it. That, that, that natural enmity is there, and that's what God said back in the beginning. I'm going to put that kind of enmity there. And so this disobedience that they came and that they, they carried out, in fact, ruined everything. They lived in a state where God was with them. They lived with Emmanuel. And because they sinned, they lost that. Look at what the scriptures say in the third chapter of Genesis, verses 22 through 24. Now, this is either an inter-Trinitarian conversation or the Lord God speaking with the angels. And it says, And the Lord God said, The man has now become like one of us, knowing good and evil. He must not be allowed to reach out his hand and take from the tree of life and eat and live forever. Notice that. The tree of life in the garden would impart eternal life. So the Lord God banished him from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he had been taken. And he drove the man out. And he placed on the east side of the garden of Eden cherubim and a flaming sword. Now, let's think about this correctly. We're not talking about little babies with wings flying around here. The cherubim are a very high order of angels. They're the guarding angels of God's holiness. Uh, they're the cherubim that overshadow the Ark of the Covenant. They surround the throne of God. And the flaming sword that is there is not some uh, toy lightsaber purchased at Walmart. It's a divine flamethrower, if you would. And that's an awesome weapon. There is a barrier on the Garden of Eden. When they need the tree of life the most, there's no coming back. There is no access to exactly what they need. What in the world is going to happen? What is God going to do to reverse all of this? Well, the temptation was there, and they took it. You notice throughout that, there's all these impressions that Satan is trying to give to both of them. It looks good. It tastes good. It's attractive. It's this. And what we're learning from that is that more often than not, 
When we make choices, when we are tempted, we tend to follow our impressions, our inclinations, our appetites, and not the instructions. Those instructions obviously are given to us for our well-being. So you find a very interesting thing after that. They realize that they're naked. Naked before God. And they have to do something to cover up their nakedness. And what do they do? Well, I guess it would be like me going to Pamela on Sunday morning and say, we've got to go to church, you know, we've got to get dressed. Here's some fig, leaf, fig leaves. Make us some clothes. You're kidding me. Make a, you see, we come to church naked. God knows every detail of our lives. There's nothing that is hidden. And this first attempt we have at covering nakedness is nothing more than a picture of what man is going to try to do to achieve his own self-righteousness in the presence of God, to fabricate this artificial thing that will clothe him and make him acceptable in the sight of God. Well, it's as much a failure as fig leaves would be a failure for real dress for us. But in the midst of it, there's this note of tremendous grace the Lord replaces the fig leaves with skin or with fur. Now, how did that happen? What did it take? We're told in Leviticus chapter 11 that life is in the blood. And in Hebrews 9:22, we're told that without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. The Lord sacrificed something to clothe them in righteousness, to clothe them, if you would, not in leaves, but as skin. And all of our attempts, if you would, at self-righteousness are nothing but failing fig leaves, and what we're going to need is a robe of perfect righteousness. And so, to gain access back to the second tree, death is going to be required to bring life. And that kind of death that is going to be required is going to be the death of a divinely provided sacrifice. It's going to be the seed of woman. It's going to be, if you would, just what we have in the picture of the nativity scene that you must, might have even at home. The central characters are not the shepherds, are not the animals. The central characters are the woman and the child. The central characters of Genesis 3.15 are the woman and the child, the woman and her offspring. And the Lord tells the serpent, you're going to bruise his heel. It will be a temporary wound, and I will overcome that. But he will bruise your head with a fatal wound. Think if you would, of the battle between our great champion, King David, the forerunner of Christ, and his arch enemy, and our arch enemy, Goliath, again, picturing evil. They were told that when David slung the stone and threw it from his sling, it hit Goliath and it sunk 
into his head. It was a mortal wound. And what Christ is going to do is deliver a mortal wound to our enemy. In 1 John chapter 3, verse 8, it says that the Son of Man came to destroy the work of the devil. The Lord Jesus came as the captain of heaven's armies, as our prince valiant, if you would. He came to slay the dragon and slay him not only on our behalf, but for his own glory. We're told in the book of Ezekiel that God says, I am going to do this not because you need it, but for my own glory. When you pray the Lord's Prayer, do you remember where it says, he makes me to walk in paths of righteousness, not for my sake, but for his own sake, that his name won't be, if you would, profaned among the nations. God is concerned with his glory more than we can imagine. And he redeems his people for his own glory, that he might be at the same time the just one and the justifier of all those who believe. And so we see that this divinely provided sacrifice is the one that would achieve what needed to be achieved. Emmanuel would come again that he might come forever. That the dividing wall, that the barrier that keeps us from the tree of life would be removed. Again, we're told in the book of Hebrews that that dividing wall is torn open and it's the body of Christ, if you would, that is pictured that opens that way his blood is shed. And so, in the beginning, the words take and eat brought death. Something was going to have to happen to change those words take and eat, to bring life. There was a tree that brought death, and there's a tree that brings life. And we're told that that tree of life is even now this day on the banks of the river that flows from the throne of God, and it bears its fruit every month of the year. And it's for the healing of the nations. And Jesus says to us in John 15, that he is the vine, and we are the branches. He is the tree of life. He's the one that says to us, take and eat, that you may live. When you hear those words this morning as you celebrate the Lord's Supper, those words have their echoes beginning back in the garden, overcoming the words take and eat that brought death. And that second tree, if you would, comes with a command. In Acts 17, 30 and 32, it says that God commands men everywhere to repent. The command on the tree of life is to come to it and to take and eat and live and not die. See, the tree of life that was in the midst of the garden is nothing more and nothing less than Scripture's finger pointing to Christ 
the one who is the true tree of life. So, however you think about a Christmas tree, or did think about a Christmas tree, when you look at yours or you look at one, think of the true tree of life. The tree of life that has a command, come, take, and eat, and live. So this morning, I would say to you, hear that command, obey that command, and take and live. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you that even though you expelled our forefathers from your presence, you came to us in Emmanuel. You came and sent your son to remove that barrier, to quench the flames of that vengeful sword, to open the way back to him, back to that true tree of life. And this morning, may you work in us by the power of your Holy Spirit to eagerly yearn to take and eat and live every day of our life. And we ask and pray this in Christ's name. Amen.